Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the church in Acts. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you to do us a favor. If you have benefited from listening to these sermons, if you found value in listening to this podcast, then it would be awesome if you would consider leaving us a rating and or review. If you'll do that, it will help our sermons be heard by more people, and we think that that is super important. Like I said, if you find these sermons to be important for you, help somebody else hear them by leaving us a rating or review. Hey, again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Today, we are going to continue to talk about church, and I'm excited to do it. As I said last week, church is is, is my most passionate subject. Uh, Not just our church, although I love our church, but church just in general. And I said last week, it's partly because I'm a pastor and partly because the church has been so influential in my spiritual life. And uh, there's another reason, and that's that I think God has actually called me to be passionate about the church, and uh, in, in a unique way, really, I guess. And so, I've mentioned before that that I was praying one time, just once, and uh, I I was experiencing God's presence in such a, a real and powerful way that I was I was face down, and I was laying there, and and I, I, Jesus was so real to me that I thought that when I opened my eyes, I was going to see his sandals. And, and whenever I say that, I need to say, like, it's so cliche because, because like, Jesus couldn't have got a pair of tennis shoes in the last couple of thousand years, you know. But I thought I was going to see his sandals when I opened my eyes. And, and I didn't. Uh, and opened my eyes, and this weird thing happened. It was followed by... Uh, by really what what felt like an like evil presence around me almost immediately after that the next day i was i was uh, in wilsonville uh near the korean war memorial and there's that big field out there uh some of you know the field if you're a wilsonville person you've probably walked by it right across from goodwill and and as i'm sitting there it's like the only time that god has spoken in in this way uh Vision would be a little too big of a statement. I don't mean like I started th- seeing things. But God started to speak to me through this field. And you won't be able to see this either. But, uh, because I didn't put this in my sermon until too late this week. But uh, this is the field. This was the moment. I, I turned with my Blackberry at the time, not my iPhone. And, and I snapped a picture of this field. And it was like God just started speak to, me, to speak to me about the, the church in America and he was using this field to tell me a story. And uh, the story he was telling me, and uh, you can kind of see it here, is there was these things that looked like, like wheat kind of out in this field. And he was basically just saying to me, our churches are filled with people who aren't, aren't really Christians. I mean, that's what he was telling me. And, then, and there was this flowery group of things. And, and God said to me, you know, many who are Christians and are serious about me are just kind of lined up or huddled together and not doing anything good. And, and, and I left knowing that it was my, my lifelong duty to try to help the church in America 
be something different. And I'm still working on figuring out what that is. In fact, I've given most of my life to figuring out exactly what needs to be done differently in the church. And, and hopefully you see that we never try to do things in the normal way here. We're trying to do things in the right way. That's, that's really important to our, our church. And here's the sad reality, though. Uh, as, I, as I fight on and try to live out this wonderful calling that seems impossible to live out, uh, the church since then seems worse, right? I mean, uh, what's happening in the American church seems worse than it was when I snapped that photo however many years ago, eight years ago or so. And, I mean, here's some numbers. I mean, these are kind of depressing, but uh, in 2016, about 73% of, them, of people in our country identified themselves as Christians, which is pretty high still, I guess, but that's down from 85% in 1990. It's a pretty staggering difference if you just, if you don't look at percentages, but you think of the amount of people that represents. Uh, in 2014, the latest data I could find, 37% of people attended church weekly. Uh, only 28% of Americans between 23 and 37 years old uh, attended church weekly as of 2017. 85% uh, of churches are declining or plateauing in attendance. 49% of people don't see a positive impact in their community because of the churches there. That's, that's way too high. And then I, I stumbled upon this article when getting ready for this sermon called Why Nobody Wants to Go to Church Anymore by Steve McSwain of the Huffington Post. And, and he wrote this. In a recent issue of Christianity Today, for example, Ed Stetzer wrote an article entitled The State of the Church in America. Hint, it's not dying. He states, the church is not dying. Yes, it's in a transition, but transitioning is not the same as dying. And then this is back to the author of the Huffington Post article. Really? What cartoons have you been watching? Clearly, the church is dying. Do your research, Mr. Stetzer. According to the Hartford Institute of Religious Research, more than 40% of Americans say they go to church weekly. As it turns out, however, less than 20% are actually in church. In other words, more than 80% of Americans are finding more fulfilling things to do on weekends. Furthermore, somewhere between 4,000 and 7,000 churches close their doors every year. Southern Baptist researcher Tom Rainier in a recent article entitled 13 Issues for Churches in 2013 puts the estimate higher. He says between 8,000 and 10,000 churches will likely close this year. Between the year 2010 and 2012, more than half of all churches in America added not one new member. Each year, nearly 3 million more previous churchgoers enter the ranks of the religiously unaffiliated. That's... That's sad, right? And, and, and just, I, I, I need to say this, and I say this every time, but this is, this is the American church we're talking about. If you go worldwide, and, and as Americans, you know, like what happens once you step over the border sometimes just doesn't matter at all to us. But worldwide, Christianity is growing and, and flourishing and thriving and every adjective that you want to use synonymously. Great things are happening in Africa and many Asian countries. And so the church is in no way dying, but perhaps maybe we could say in this author's words that the church is dying in our country. And the question, and I think so much of what this series is about, the question is like, like why and, and what can we do to be different as a church? Not necessarily, and I know you probably don't care about this as much as me, but like, like 
I care about what can happen in every church across our country, right? But maybe you just are like, what can happen in this church and what can I do differently in order to help this church be a church that isn't dying, that is thriving and is, is going against the grain and, and making changes and differences in our community and, and seeing more than zero people become members every year, which we have our membership course the after, this afternoon, so we're going to get over that zero mark for sure. Um, and, 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 you know, like, I mean, what can we do to be making sure that people who are a part of our church want to be here at our church and, and, and don't think that there's more fulfilling things to do on the week? And, and what can we do in order to help our community become more and more churched versus more and more unchurched? What is, what is it that we need to do? And, and we're looking at this book in the Bible called Acts. And Acts is the story of the first church and the early church. And in this book, this guy named Luke, who was a historian, a doctor, a Christian missionary, really interesting life, right? I mean, I'd like to hang out with him. He writes this book for a guy named Theophilus that he had written the gospel of Luke for. And in the gospel of Luke, he said, here's all you need to know about Jesus. Here's a bunch of stuff. I did my research. This is what Jesus was like. It's really worth following him. That's kind of his point to Theophilus. And in Acts, he says, okay, now Jesus has gone back up into heaven, and here's what the early church, the early followers of Jesus did, and here's what it looked like. And, And he tells these good and bad stories, and we talked about last week, in the middle of these good and bad stories, he's always trying to put the best foot forward for the church. But what we saw is he does that, and we talked about this last week. If you missed the sermon, go back and listen. What we saw last week is as he puts the church's best foot forward, he does it to say, here's the deal. In the midst of the good and the bad and the ugly, everything that happens when people get involved in anything, right? Any type of organization, any type of group, when people are involved, there will be good and there will be bad. There will be messes and, you know, all that stuff. In the midst of it all, though, because of the power of God's Holy Spirit, because of God's movement on earth, the church was triumphing. There was triumph in the church. People were being added to their number daily. It was growing like crazy. And the believers were being strengthened in their faith and growing in their knowledge and understanding of God and Jesus and all he had done. And more and more they were living their lives for him. And as Luke does that, he shows us the good things that the church was doing that really allowed for an environment where God's Holy Spirit was doing this incredible work. That's kind of the the trick of Christianity that's a little funny, right? And especially for me as as a pastor, it's like there's always this trick of saying we need to, to work really hard, we need to work our butts off, but we don't think that we really do the important work. We think that God does it. And in, in Acts, we see that tension I think in a really cool way because Luke is saying, here's what that early church that did, did that was so great, but look at what God did through it, right? Look at what God accomplished. And in our passage today, this passage we're going to look at, it's, it's so utterly counter-Christian American church culture that you can't help but say, well, what if? What if our churches followed this pattern? Then, then maybe we could not in any way say the church is dying. Maybe we would once again say the church is thriving. 
And, and so here's, here's just a little setup, a lot shorter setup than last week. There, there's some 8,000 people in the church at this point. Remember last week when we looked at the summary passage in the book of Luke, it, it had grown to about 3,120 or so uh, in one single day. And now the church has grown to about 8,000 people. There's 8,000 Christians running around uh, the city of Jerusalem. In Acts 4, 20 three through eight three we see kind of this one long section this is how theologian commentary writers have split up the book and from 423 to 83 we see this kind of long section that's telling this story of 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 the internal kind of happenings of the church but then how God is moving and how that's affecting those who are outside of the church and it ends with persecution so great that the church has to scatter throughout different cities. It has to leave Jerusalem. It spreads and that ends up being a really good thing for Christianity. But we'll talk about that later. And so we're in the middle of this section, Acts 4.23. At the beginning of this section, excuse me. At the beginning of Acts 4.23 through 8.3. We're not covering all that, I promise. We see this incredible story that I think if we pay attention to what happens here, we'll be like, yeah, we need to be more like that. And here's how it starts. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So here's, here's the situation. They, they had done this, God had done this incredible miracle through Peter. This, this guy was begging for money. He was sitting outside the temple gates, looked at Peter, said, hey, give me some money. Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. The guy starts walking. People are like, whoa, what's the deal here? Peter starts to preach about Jesus again, the religious leaders who had in large part been responsible for killing Jesus and trying to stop the uprising that they saw happening in the name of Jesus are not thrilled about this. And so they, in chapter three, arrest Peter, John, some of the disciples, some of Jesus' followers, they throw him into jail. Now, it's really an interesting thing because what Peter is preaching is just our gospel, this thing that we call the gospel that we're so passionate about. And it's the story. He's preached twice in Acts to this point when we get to chapter 4 and both times. He said, look, here's the deal. You're a sinner. You killed Jesus but Jesus died for your sins and he got out of the grave. So if you will repent of your sin and give your life to Jesus, then you can have forgiveness for your sins. You can have salvation. You can enter into a relationship with God. You can look forward uh, to a, a future eternity with him. And in Acts 4, 1 and 2, at the beginning of our chapter, we read this. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And, and so they arrest them. It's the first hint of persecution and it like I said it ends with really bad persecution but it's the first hint but in Acts 4:12, in the middle of this conversation that they're having between Peter John these religious leaders Peter's like salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved no other name man in Acts 5.41, you'll see something very similar, by the way, and it's important because we, we 
what we hear the, the religious leaders say. It says in Acts 5.41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And so this idea, the name, is really uh, it's about the authority and, and the will and, uh, and for the purpose of glorifying Jesus. And so what, what these religious leaders are saying to the disciples, what they say to them is, we don't want you speaking on behalf of Jesus. We don't want you speaking with the authority of Jesus. We don't want you speaking for the good name, for the honor of Jesus. We don't want you doing that anymore. And there's this really fascinating conversation that you should read between Peter and these religious leaders because the religious leaders are like, you stop it. And Peter's like, we're not going to stop it. Like, we're going to obey God and not you. That's the right thing to do. And the religious leaders are so impressed because because these disciples are not educated people, but yet they have this incredible courage while standing in front of the most educated people. Like picture going in front of the smartest people, the smartest religious people in our whole country and standing there and they're saying, you're wrong. And you're going, sorry, you're wrong. You know, like that's kind of a scary moment, but they're not scared at all. And so they're like, don't talk. Peter's like, we're going to speak in the name of Jesus. They're like, don't. And then they get together and they're like, well, this is a problem because Clearly, this guy used to not be able to walk, and now he can, and that's really hard to argue against, right? It's really hard to argue against somebody's experiences. I don't know if you've ever tried that. Like, no, I swear this happened. Like, no, it didn't. Like, I have all the logical proof, but no, I saw it. You know, like, it just doesn't work, and so they can't win an argument. Even if they were right and they're not, they can't win an argument, and so they just give them this stern warning. Don't do it anymore. We're telling you, right? And that's, that's how the story ends and now in our passage, and I absolutely love this, Peter and John are released from jail. Where do they go? They go to their own people. This is a brilliant statement because it's a phrase that most of the time in the Bible refers to one's family, one's biological relatives, the people that we would call our kin. But here, that's not where they go. They don't go to their cousin's house. They don't go to their aunt and uncle's house. They go directly to their church, and Luke records it as they go to their own. Now, we don't know if this is all 8,000 people, 5,000 have just been added, and so it might be the original 3,000, it might be just a group of Christians, but no matter, the point stands the same. When they thought about who their people were, they thought about church. Haven't we lost that, right? Like, I just don't know that that's true in America. I think it's a little bit true in our church, and I'm really proud of that. But, like, they didn't think, oh, I got out of jail. I need to go see mommy and daddy, you know. They thought, like, I got out of jail. I'm going to go find my church people, and I'm going to tell them about what's taking place. This is not at all the main point, but I think it's a really important point. That if the American church is going to thrive again, then we must be each other's people. Like, we need to see it that way. And in our country where persecution is not high, and, and you know, a Christian might go their entire lives and have nothing happen more than maybe be made fun of once for being a Christian and, you know, hating science or whatever people think we do as Christians. Uh, but you're never going to be arrested you're probably never going to be arrested. You're never going to be beat up. You know, you're never going to risk the thought of death for your faith. And, and so that makes it harder in some degree because we can go to our families. 
even if they don't love Jesus, and they'll be there to comfort us in our times of trouble, even if that time of trouble is because of our Christian faith. But if we're going to see the church thrive again, then when we think about who our own are, who our people are, we must think about our church. We must think about the church. And so the people, the disciples go to their own And they tell what had happened. They share this story that I've already shared with you. We were arrested. They told us to stop. We said no. They said, really, you should stop. And then we left. And then we read this in Acts 4, 24 through 30. This is talking about the church. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what? Your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So, so here's, here's what happens in, in this passage is these people hear the story and, and all together, whether that means some type of rehearsed prayer, I don't think so, or they just were praying in unison. They were praying in a a spirit of unity together. Like we would say uh, in, you know, church circles, it's a really churchy thing we say, like, I agree with you in prayer, right? And, and, And so that's what's happening here. And in this prayer, there is such a vast difference between what they pray and, and what we pray, that, that I can't help but just think, like, what if we only, what if we only started to pray like this? How much would that change the culture of the American church? How much would that change the culture of our country in general? And, and so I just want to, I just want to look at some of these things that they, that they say, and, and these things that they pray, because I think, if you think about how we pray, right, we pray that we'll feel better. I mean, we, in a variety of ways, whatever that might mean, right? Like whether we'll have more money so that we can feel better or whether, you know, our, we'll get better physically because we're sick so that we can feel better or whether somebody will stop being mean to us and so that we'll feel better. I mean, we, we basically spend most of our time praying that we'll, we'll feel better. And these disciples, their leaders just got out of jail. And, and, and if they were us, the prayer would have been like this. Dear God, we always start with dear God, right? Or is that just me? Dear God, thank you that they were safe. I pray that you would keep us safe from now on. That would be our prayer. That's how it would sound. And that might not be bad. And your prayer for health and wealth and People being nice to you, those aren't necessarily bad, but they're not this. And this, I think, changes the world. God help me to feel better does not change the world, but this changes the world. 
the first thing here that they do is, is they use, I just love this, they raise their voices together in prayer and then they call God Sovereign Lord. And it's really interesting because they use a word for God here that is, is not normal. It's not normal. And uh, I've taken a couple of years of Greek and, and I didn't even know this word existed. I needed to learn like every word in the New Testament, Greek word in the New Testament that appeared 50 times or more, right? And, and this word I didn't know. It appears less than 50 times in the New Testament. The word is despot and, and it means a master implying absolute dominion, supreme authority, and unlimited power. So they look at God, and in this moment, they break from the tradition of Jesus, who said, pray our Father. They break from kind of the normal Greek term for God, which would be theos. They break from these things, and they look up, and they say, despot, which means master, absolute dominion, supreme authority, unlimited power. And then they point to the fact that he is both maker of heaven and earth. They point to his supreme divine authority, his sovereignty in our NIV translation. Now, we don't really like that side of God, right? I mean, we, I, I don't think, I mean, I can't speak for you. We like the fatherly side of God. We like looking at God as a grandpa who just wants us to feel better, right? But we in modern America don't like to look at God as the one who has absolute sovereign authority, who is to be fully obeyed and who is totally in control. I think we don't like it for a couple of reasons. One, it means that we need to obey him in everything, right? I mean, if he is master of all, then, then that really has to change how we live our lives. But two, it presents a whole bunch of problems that I'm not going to deal with today. If God is totally in control, then why is there suffering? If God is totally in control, then why don't I feel good? But in the midst of this difficult circumstance, I just find it so interesting that they're not drawn to the fatherly nature of God. They're drawn to the sovereignty nature of God. That almost rhymed, so I just had to go with it. Um, they want to know that God is absolutely in control. These religious leaders who have just threatened them have no power. That's the point. God has the power. It doesn't matter these little threats by these little rulers. That's unimportant. What is important is that God is in control. And I think we don't like it, but I think if we ever got to a place where we were really fearing persecution, like I'm really scared that, that the person in charge of our country is going to have me beaten for my faith, then all of a sudden it would be really important to remember, wait a minute, that guy has no power except for the power that our despot has given him. And so the first thing we see here is that, that in this prayer, and we don't do this enough, and there's been times in my life where I've tried to do this, but in this prayer... We see that they, the first thing they do is they remember who God is, right? And we, when we pray, we're thinking about, I just want to feel better. It's so us-centered, like, who am I? But they're like, who is God? Who is God? And then, and then, a couple of times in this prayer, they, they talk about Jesus as God's anointed, and they talk about the, how Jesus 
suffered, right? And what they're doing is they're putting, they're remembering, first of all, that Jesus is the most important. Jesus is the one God sent. Jesus is the one that they follow. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the early church was so good about that. And I'm not sure we are, but we love Jesus. But in their prayer, they're like, Jesus is the most important. He's the one, right? Like that God sent. And we need to keep that in front of us. But also, they're reminding themselves that their suffering is not a surprise. Jesus himself said, look, if they persecute me, then they're going to persecute you. It was promised. It's promised in the New Testament that all who live godly will be persecuted. And so by remembering Jesus and the suffering at the hands of Pontius Pilate and Herod, two guys, by the way, who bitterly despised each other, but came together in order to murder Jesus. They remember that Jesus is God's anointed one. Jesus is the most important. Jesus is the reason that we do this. And and Jesus is the reason that we're suffering. It's not a surprise. It's not outside the, uh, what God planned. It's not outside of God's foreknowledge. What he understood would take place. He knew it was going to happen. And in the midst of this, they draw themselves back, I think, to a godly perspective on their own situation. So not only do they draw themselves to a place where they're like, remember who God is. They're like, remember how God thinks. And we definitely don't do that. I'm pretty sure I just want to feel better. It's not how God thinks about your suffering or our suffering. God just wants you to glorify him. God just wants his plan on earth to move forward for his kingdom to be built. In fact, Jesus, when he's teaching on worry, says, seek first the kingdom, right? Seek first the kingdom. Seek first growing in righteousness, becoming more like God wants you to be, being more obedient to God. Seek first leading other people into a relationship with God. Seek first God's glory, and then I'll take care of you. What he doesn't say is, seek first feeling better, and then I'll make sure that you get whatever you want. But this early church is like, we know that you're in control, you're all-powerful, you're all-knowing, you're all-sovereign, you're sovereign over everything. And we're trying to look at this like you would look at it. I think for, our, for us, it's, it's like, it's different, you know, like, we, when we get sick, right? I'll come back to that. I mean, I mean we, should, I, we should pray for healing, and we do pray for healing. We've seen so many people in our church, you know, have, have God say yes to our prayers, like literal things, like God take away their cancer, and then God does. We've seen that in our church, and it's awesome, and I'm not against all that, but I think if we're gonna see the church triumph once again, it's gotta be more like this. God, I'm sick, I don't want to be sick, but I know you're in total control. And if you want to take away this sickness, you can. But if you don't want to take away this sickness, then, then you're in no way obligated to do so. And God, I, I don't know, but maybe you've given me this sickness in order that I can, I can comfort others who are sick. That's something the Bible talks about. Or, or in order that, that I can show people that I have the hope of heaven. And even if, God, you let me die, then that's okay. Because, because Jesus, you died, right? I mean, you came to earth and you didn't get to go straight to heaven, but you died. And I can show people that I love you so much that I will die in a way that pleases you in order to glorify your name. 
That's different than I want to feel better. These people believed that God would triumph, by the way, because when they called Jesus the anointed one, and in fact, the quotation in this passage is from Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 is a, is a psalm of triumph. I don't know if you've read through the psalms, but some are happier than others, and Psalm 2 is one of those where, where the guy thinks, David, uh, thinks that, that victory is his, right? Victory is his. And they believe that. But they're not saying, give me victory. They're saying, there will be victory for you, God. Because this is all part of your plan. It's all part of your plan. So, then we get to what they, they actually ask for. We just start there usually, right? Like, I mean, we just jump through everything else and we go straight to, here's what I need, God. Let's get down to it. Let's get to the checklist. And and they go, through, they like, God, this is who you are. We're thinking about this in, in your terms. We're quoting scripture, which I think is another thing that we could, we could do much better in our prayers. We could, you know, actually know the scripture to quote when we pray. That would be a good starting point, too. But they do that. And then, and, and, and then they, they get to the end of this, the end of it, right? And then they ask God for something. And maybe you were paying attention, but I can tell you, I mean, I can tell you what our prayers would sound like. Like, our prayers would sound like, God, strike those religious leaders dead. God, remove those religious leaders from power. God, I pray that we would just find favor in their eyes. God, even if we don't find favor in their eyes, protect us from them. Don't let any more harm come. God, help us to know where to move so we don't have to deal with this anymore. These would be our prayers, right? That would be what we sounded like. But did you notice what they prayed? Now, Lord, consider their threats. God, pay attention to us. We believe God pays attention, but it's nice for us to ask him to do so, right? God, pay attention. It was a big deal for Jewish people that God, when he had his face shining upon you, when God was looking at you, you were in his favor, right? God, show us your favor. Listen to our prayers. Pay attention to what's going on with us. Consider their threats. Now listen. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Not let it go away. Not make us feel better. Not fix this. Not make it so that we never have to deal with that again. God, even though we face the threat of persecution, and they'll be beat up not long later for keeping on preaching in the name of Jesus, even though we face that, here's our request, God. Here's our request. Make us bold in proclaiming your word probably synonymous with the gospel. Make us bold in declaring to the world that you sent your son, the anointed one, to die for their sins so that if they will give their lives to him, they may have forgiveness from those sins and enter into a relationship with you. God, give us boldness. They're like, yeah, like this is bad, right? Like this might make us not tell people about Jesus anymore. That's what they're thinking, like, man, wow, like we've been telling everybody, but now, now we might be hesitant, because now we know we might be arrested, or maybe they'll beat us up, or maybe we'll die like Jesus did. 
Their fear is not that they'll be beat up. Their fear is that they won't talk about Jesus because they might be beat up. And so they say, God, look down here, see what's happening, and then please, God, here's our request. Help us to be bold in proclaiming your word. I I mean, isn't that so different? I mean, what if that was the modern American church's attitude, right? God, I'm not so worried about feeling better, but God, what I'm facing is so hard that it might make it so that I don't proclaim your gospel to people anymore. And so just in the middle of this, give me the strength, give me the boldness, give me the, the ability to keep telling people what you've done for them. Just help me to keep doing it. Sadly, even in the midst of peace, where there is no persecution, we're not asking for boldness in telling others about Jesus. We have hardly any boldness at all. And I can tell you that I believe that the day persecution breaks out in this country and the first Christian gets arrested, that 73% of American Christians will decrease rapidly. (laughs) But for those of us that really are Christians, that will serve Jesus even to the point of dying, you would think that even now when we might be made fun of, we would be asking, God, make me bold. When we might lose a friend, we might offend somebody. Make me bold, God, in proclaiming your gospel. That doesn't mean stupid. That doesn't mean mean. The early church was not stupid or mean in how they proclaimed the gospel. At our church, we talk about thoughtful gospel proclamation. In other words, we're trying to do it in a way that that people will actually hear and receive. But we must be bold in that endeavor And when we pray, our prayers should be centered not around us feeling better, but around us moving the kingdom forward. Whether that be in us as we grow and start to live more fully for Jesus, or whether that be us proclaiming the gospel to others. And then then they pray this other thing in there, right? So that's one request. Make us bold. The other request, again, not make me feel better. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's pretty widely accepted that the reason that they are praying for signs and wonders and miracles is because in the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, signs, wonders, and miracles act as proof that the gospel is true. So what they are praying is not like do awesome things so that we might believe. They already clearly believe that Jesus is the savior of the world, right? That's why they're praying for boldness in the midst of persecution. That's not what they're asking. What they're saying is God, give us boldness in proclaiming your word and then do miracles to accompany that boldness so that people might actually believe that it's true. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, I know in our church, we come from kind of different theological flavors. We have different ideas about how miracles work in our world today. But if we're going to try to live a little bit more like the early church, and I don't think we should do everything the early church did, but I think there are some things to be modeled. Then maybe we should start saying, God, like do some miracles 
so that these people who are rejecting you out of hand, who are rejecting you without thinking about it, do some miracles so that they might come to believe what I'm telling them is true about you. God, I know you've changed my life. I know the forgiveness and the hope and the peace and the love and the joy and the greatness of having a relationship with you. I know all that. But God, they're not unless you do a miracle. And so please, God, accompany my boldness with miraculous deeds so that they might come to believe it's true. Matt preached a series not too long ago about miracles and he talked about how that word miracle is really a word for signs. Miracles don't just exist so that God can, you know, show off. They're signs that point to something greater and what they're praying for is signs that point to the truth of the gospel. Now whether you come from a theological kind of background where you're like, yeah, miracles, we should be shooting for them all the time or, or whether you come from one that's like, oh, I didn't talk about that. Like, I, I don't know that we're praying for these things. And I think that it's probably twofold. The reason, this is just me thinking, don't have any good hard data, but I think there's probably two reasons that we don't pray for miracles more often than we do. We don't pray for miracles outside of things that make us feel better. God, do a miracle. I need a million dollar check. You know, like, well, we might say that, but like, God, do a miracle. I don't care what it is because I want them to know that you're real. We don't ask for those things. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I think we're super scared of what that might look like, right? Like if God starts really getting back to doing some crazy stuff, like that's going to make a lot of us uncomfortable, might have to change how we live we might have to spend more time praying for those miracles and so part of the reason I think is simply that it that it scares us a little especially you know if you come from theological backgrounds like like I do like where it's just not talked about that often and when we think of miracles we think of the crazy church down the road we don't actually have a crazy church down the road so I can I can say that out loud but you know I, I grew up like literally down the road from a church where it's like this, this is a little weird. Like there was some people getting gold fillings out of nowhere because of their prayers. And I, I think it's fake, honestly. I don't know how else to say that. It's fake. It's fake, right? And so when I think of miracles, I have a tendency to think of fake. And so it's a little scary. The other reason, the other reason I think we don't pray for these types of miracles that show the world that God is real it's because I don't think we care that much if other people give their lives to Jesus. And I think that's one of the great reasons that the American church is dying is because we just don't care. Why would we pray for boldness and why would we ask for miracles that are truly signs that point to the truth of the gospel when we don't really even care if our friends and our family members and our loved ones accept that gospel is true anyway? There's no reason. And I look at the American church and think, man, like, it's dying. And I think it's dying because of maybe the fact that we don't really pray that much. And when we do, it sounds nothing like this early church who is obsessed with telling more and more and more and more people that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that salvation is found in no other name except for that of him. There's this wonderful model of prayer here, this invocation where they remember who, 
who God is, right? Like, God, this is who you are. You're my Lord and my master. This quotation, right? They quote scripture and it helps it to put, it helps their situation be put in godly perspective and a godly perspective through this quotation. And then there's this explanation, this narration about how they see what's going on in a godly way. And then there's this petition, this prayer for God. This is what we want to happen. But that petition is caught up in, in what they they believe God wants, not in what make, will make them feel better. And in Acts 4.31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The series is called Filled because I think that, that the problem with the American church is that there are things that we clearly see in Acts, some of them it actually says the word filled, some of them it doesn't, but they were filled with certain things that we're just not filled with today. And I think one of those is the Holy Spirit. Now I know that bothers some of you right off the bat, but I believe that every person that becomes a Christian has the Holy Spirit inside of them to comfort them, to guide them, to lead them, to convict them, to encourage them, to inspire them, to equip them and gift them in certain ways to serve the church. I believe that. But one of the things that we get away from sometimes in the, in, in the non-charismatic side of the church, right, is this idea that's quite clear in Scripture that, that there are times when we are filled with the Holy Spirit or when we overflow with the Holy Spirit. There are times when the Holy Spirit moves in a different, unique, and more powerful way in our lives and in the church. And when I look around at the American church, I do not see us being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think it's in large part because we are not praying like that church did. We're saying, God, comfort us, when we really should be saying, God, give us boldness. And if we'll ask for that, then I think God's Spirit will fill us. And we will notice, I mean, notice, it works, right? They, the whole place is shaken, that's crazy. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and what was the result? They spoke the Word of God boldly. They spoke the Word of God boldly. Ben Witherington III, one of my favorite authors on the Bible, says this, filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking God's power with boldness is a way of Luke talking about prophetic inspiration and power in speaking and should not be taken as indicating something about the level of sanctification of those involved. The issue is empowerment for proclaiming and not personal spiritual formation or growth. We're not talking about us here. We're not talking about us as individuals, I should say. We're talking about us, the church. And if we want to see the church move forward, we can't stop we have to stop, excuse me, praying, God, just make everything better. Give me comfort. Make it all right for me. We must start praying, God, you're incredible. You're in charge. I'm putting this in your perspective. But God, please, no matter what, help us to glorify you. And if we will, I think God will fill us, fill us with the Holy Spirit. And when the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, the church does not die. The church triumphs. The church thrives. The church grows. Throughout history, that's been the case. And so I hope you'll join me in, in praying differently. 
And we're going to do that this morning. Um, and so that's why we moved. If you're here every week, you're like, hey, we forgot to pray. We didn't. Um, and so this morning, what we're going to do right now is, is we're going to take some time and we're going to, we're going to pray. And you're not allowed to uh, pray that God will make anything better in your life. In fact, I hope this morning that you won't even pray that God will make anything better unless that betterment is his glory and his kingdom spreading in our country once again. And really what I want to pray for this morning is, man, that our church would be bold, that our church would be filled with the Holy Spirit. But even more than that, I want to pray that the church in our country will thrive. Really what I want to pray is that there will be revival in our country. I pray sometimes for the third great awakening. And if you don't know church history, uh, there's been these two great awakenings. And uh, both of them, one of them spread into the U.S. One of them was centered around the U.S. Some people have claimed the third great awakening, but I'm not sure we've actually seen it. And so I pray for it. And, and really, I just want to see the, this country and, and hopefully other European countries just return to a place where the church thrives. And so this morning, uh, before we do kind of the response song, will you, will you just pray that uh, God would do something miraculous in our country?